welcome to Human Tech, a podcast about the intersection of humans and technology. My name is Guthrie. I'm here with Susan. Hello, Susan. Hi, Guthrie. And we also have a very special guest today. We have Spencer Gerald, founder and CEO of Spark Neural. Hello, Spencer. Hi, Guthrie. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having oh, me on the show. It's so great to, to finally get you on. Yeah, he's well, a really busy guy. <laughs> we all are. So As they well, say, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person. Mm. So, Spencer, <laughs> we go back a long way. Long way. I know. Where does all that time go? So, uh, Guthrie, I don't, I don't, I think you know some of this, but I don't know how much you know. But, but well, the audience certainly doesn't know. Yeah, any and of they it. don't know any of it. So, uh, <laughs> Spencer and I used to work together at an, at a company when at a consulting company years ago. Um, we didn't, you know, oh, and and we did some work together. I would have liked to do more work together, but we were kind of all busy on our own projects and stuff. But um, that's where I first met Spencer, and then. Uh, you know, I left and then he let right people move on and do other things. And then, uh, then we had that interesting kind of, uh, I don't know what small world experience just recently. Right. Where, um, yeah, Susan, I realized I just did a quick math when we started working together. Yeah. That was 13 years ago. Oh God. You mean when I was like a toddler? <laughs> yeah. You were about 16. <laughs> I was two. <laughs> thanks a lot spencer <laughs> see we go way back i can say things like that it was 13 years huh 13 years ago wow. when we started wow. um and then it lasted at least another five or six years yeah yeah it was a long time and then yeah. um all right so what happened recently so spencer and i i mean you know we kind of heard about each other here and there but we kind of lost touch and then uh one day i was just thinking about you and I looked up to see you know what you were doing and saw I knew you had started a, a user experience company and then I saw that you had started this new company um, kind of spun off and we're going to talk about that and what you're doing there um, and then oddly enough like the next day I was I'm work was working on a project with a client and this uh, one of the people in a meeting a phone meeting said well, there's this company and there's this guy, you know, Spencer, Spencer, <laughs> Daryl, we could bring him in. And I was like, what? How did, <laughs> you know, where do, where do you guys know him? Right. So that was just uh, and then we ended up on the phone. You didn't even know I was calling in uh, to speak to one of your employees. And, right. uh, and I said, hey, is Spencer there? Tell him I'm on the phone. So that was pretty. And, right. and I heard you yelling in the background. <laughs> as usual um that's that's it really was a small world experience but on the other hand this whole world of human factors and user experience yeah. and human-centered design it's a small world in and of itself it's bigger surprised. now than it was that's when i started good. in it but yeah well that's for sure all right um, so give yeah. us the um i i have lots of questions for you and and who knows what tangents we'll go off on and guthrie i i know spencer and i we are both like People who tend to just talk and talk and talk, and you may have a hard time getting a word in edgewise, but, but you know, jump in when you want to. Um, yeah, I will. Okay. I'll, 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 I'll poignant questions as poignant the time arises. Questions. All right. So, Spencer, Pointed, first poignant. of all, uh, I mentioned that you started in UX, but now your company is not technically or really a UX company. So can you give us the um, two-minute uh 
spiel on on what you're doing these days? Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, so what what I'm doing now, I would call it potentially a close cousin of UX, of user experience or human-centered design. Um, like you as well, Susan, I know that you've always had a similar fascination, um, and human tech being the name of this podcast could not be more fitting. Um, I am uh, fascinated with, maybe even obsessed with, how human beings process emotion and attention and how that guides our uh, experiences and decisions in everything we do in life. And with all of the research methods that we've been employing for many years, there have always been various biases and weaknesses. And one of the things that I have really been passionate about is using neuroscience, digging deeper into academia, and using neuroscience technology and neuroscience methods in order to better understand how we as human beings are processing emotion, uh, how attention is affecting every move that we make, and how to really measure and quantify that. So our main business is really in a couple areas, one advertising and the other entertainment. So we're looking at things like TV ads or movie trailers and using neuroscience tools like EEG to read brain activity and also other neurometrics and biometrics to understand the level to which you are paying attention to the content that you're consuming and the emotional experience that you're having with the goal of really measuring and understanding what used to be really subjective and very qualitative, um, which is really how is the content affecting you? How are you processing it emotionally? And ultimately, how does that affect the decisions you make so that we can optimize advertising movie trailers and really make them uh, more powerful? Okay, that was good. Now I have questions. Um, so the first question, well, first of all, just to comment on the fact that, you know, I've been interested in this too, uh, uh, much more theoretically than practically, because, you know, you're out doing it. Um, but because of this idea that most mental processing is unconscious. So, you know, it's not just that, I mean, it's subjective from everyone's point of view, the researcher's point of view, but also the person you're asking, right? So you ask people, what do you think? Or, you know, what do you feel? Or uh, do you find that interesting? And uh, it, they they make stuff up because they don't yeah. really know because we know all that, all those feelings and a lot of the feelings, emotions, thoughts, and mental processing oh. is unconscious. So I've been really interested in, you know, how do you do these measurements, neural measurements that that uh, without the person having to filter it through conscious experience. But here, here's a question I have for you. So yeah, I know that the, the uh, and you're, I'm sure you'll, you'll tell us as we go through, you know, what's currently possible, what state of the art is. I, my impression is that, um, you know, it's still fairly new. And although there's a lot that can be done, uh, you know, it might not be as easy for you to analyze data and, and the data you're getting might not be as robust as one would hope. So I'm going to ask in, in your, you know, fantasy world of being able to do neural measurements, if you, you know, project 20 years or, or 10 years or whatever it is, 50 years into the future where we're 
we are much better at this and we've developed, you know, even more sophisticated tools to do it. What would be like your, wow, here's, here's what I'd like the state of the art for neural measurement to be. What would you like? Like if you could create yeah. your future world. Well, I, I certainly have uh, big dreams and hopes for where that's all headed and we're working on pushing it forward. We've also come a long, long way. And the data that we're getting now is perhaps far more uh, accurate and insightful than you might even realize. And we should really have a, a take a chance to walk you through some of it and, and give you some uh, examples of what the data really looks like. Um, so I'd love to answer the question of where we are headed in the future. I wonder, Guthrie and Susan, if it would be useful to start with like, hey, where are we now? So the audience yes. can really understand like, hey, you know, this is the current state. And then we can from there build and say, this is what's next and here's Good. the next step. Go for it. And, and if you have any specifics on exactly what tech you're using, I think that yeah. would be useful to the audience as we have a lot of people may not, may not know anything. A lot of people may not even know what EEG means. Absolutely, so, Guthrie. I think that's yeah. a great, great starting point. So let's go over Wonderful. the tech that we're using and what we're doing with it. Um, and then let's advance into what Susan asked and try to understand where this is all headed and what's coming next. So let's, let's break down the tech into each of the different um, uh, sensors, each of the different technologies that we're using and what it's good for. But also we can talk about what is it not good for. Um, so we understand the strengths and weaknesses of each. And I'll preface this all by saying that the most powerful thing we can do, and this applies to both the what are we doing at present, but also the what will we do in the future, the most powerful thing we can do is recognize that any one sensor is not going to answer every single question or any one piece of technology. But the combination of the various different technologies is what allows us to dig deeper and deeper. Additionally, the technology itself, and this is all the, the, the precursor to introducing what it is, the technology itself is a host of messy data coming in at thousands of data points per second. It is an absolute disaster. And so the real power of how we make sense of it comes in the algorithms that in an automated fashion take that mess of data and turn it into something that makes absolute intuitive sense. Now, when you and say, so these, well, hold on one second, because yeah. when you say, you know, it's messy data, and that's not necessarily because the technology isn't, you know, good enough. That's, you're talking about it's messy data because it's coming from the body and the brain? Yeah, I mean, your, your brain, the way that it communicates, it communicates via sending a series of electrical signals all about. And these signals happen in different parts of the brain and different frequencies of electricity. And there is a ton of what we call noise. And I don't mean literal noise, like banging, um, but noise as in the difference between signal and noise in your data, where things like every time you blink your eye or clench your jaw, or the lights in the room are all emitting electricity. And that creates noise in the data that needs to be cleaned. And so the data, if you just look at raw EEG data, an EEG is electroencephalogram, and it's used to read the electrical impulses coming out of your brain through your scalp and to take very fine-tuned measurements of all that electricity. Now, the challenge is that that electricity and all those signals are incredibly messy and incredibly complicated. 
And so the real challenge over for us the last few years has been to clean up the noise and write algorithms that take that data and turn it into something that just absolutely makes sense. So let, uh, let's go back to Guthrie's question. Let's actually talk about that. And let's, since we're already on the topic, let's start with EEG. So EEG is a device that you wear on your head. And you might remember seeing in movies and things like that if you haven't been involved in the medical community or the, the scientific or neuroscience community. Um, you, you've seen that there are the, these electrodes that you attach to people's heads. And those electrodes pick up the electricity that your brain is emitting. Now, as time has gone by, just like the old days of eye tracking, you remember that, um, the technology has advanced and it has become a lot less cumbersome. We no longer have to use that goopy conductive gel and have to take a shower afterwards. We don't have to have as many sensors once we have more sophisticated algorithms to make use of the data. Um, you know, you know I did a, a EEG study um, during my PhD research and I won't tell you when that was. Let's just say it was a long time ago. And yes, there was lots you have of all those wires, uh, lots of wires and lots of goopy gel, but it made us look very scientific. Well, well, absolutely. And <laughs> there's a double edged sword there, just like when eye tracking became more accessible. Some of the scientific credibility of how the processes were done and how the data was analyzed started to become at risk. And I think that the same is true for any technology. It's a great benefit, but it's also a double edged sword. So of all the sensors we use, EEG is by far the most rich, the most depth. It tells us an incredible amount about how your brain is processing information, the extent to which you are paying attention, and attention of different types, um, and how you're processing emotion, and the extent to which those emotions are positive, negative, how intense those emotions are. So it is incredibly rich. And when we chart the data, it's, it's also very intuitive. So we've broken down this very difficult, messy science into essentially just two numbers. One is a number for attention, which is scored from 0 to 10, where 10 is I am absolutely enthralled, paying such close attention to the thing that you're putting in front of me. A 0 would be dead. And a one would be you're pretty much falling asleep or in some kind of meditative state. And a five is not bad. I mean, that's actually a decent amount of attention. And so we took this mad science and turned it into something that anybody looking at the chart can say, oh, look, their attention's at a six. Like, that's pretty good. Oh, it's on its way up. And you're looking at it on a second-by-second -second basis. And the reason that's so important is let's say you're trying to optimize a 30-second television commercial or any kind of content for that matter, um, then you really don't want to know over some extended period of time what were they uh, emotionally feeling. You want to know at every second what that experience is. Where do they get bored? Where do they feel some strong emotion? And it's that... Um, granularity in the data as processed through these algorithms that make sense of what we talked about as a mess of data that really makes it incredibly powerful. So that's that's a primer on EEG, which we can dig a lot more deeply into. And I'll let you guys lead the way. Do you want to dig deeper into EEG or kind of get an overview of all the sensors? Let's, uh, let's continue the sensors. And then I have, I, I have, I have a couple uh, perhaps EEG questions. Amazing. So EEG, as we said, reading brain activity, um, 
very sophisticated and the most important of any of the sensors that we use. The next on the list that is also important is uh, GSR, galvanic skin response, also often referred to as electrodermal activity. And this is the electricity that your skin conducts as a sign of emotional arousal. Now let's break that down. So you ha may have noticed, let's say that you almost got in a car accident and you sort of break out into this like full body sweat or you're a little nervous for an interview that's coming up or a presentation that you're about to give and your palms are sweating a little bit. Well, that sweat is conducting electricity and as the uh, sweat glands in your palms and fingers in particular open up, that conducts electricity. And that's electricity that we can measure. And so the more you are in a, a heightened emotional state, the more electricity is conducted and most sensitively through your palms and fingers. And so whether you're feeling absolute joy or just total fear, you are having that kind of palm sweatiness. Now, you only notice it when it's particularly intense. However, it's happening all day, every day. It's constantly changing, and that allows us to get a fine-tuned measure of the emotional state of arousal. Um, so when you combine these sensors, right, so EEG is telling me, are you paying attention? Are you feeling a positive emotion, a negative emotion, to some degree, to what intensity? Then we layer in the skin conductance, GSR, galvanic skin response, and that tells us another layer of the emotional state or the emotional intensity that you're experiencing. So those two sensors tell us a, an incredible amount. And then we start to layer in a few other things. Next up on the list is eye tracking. Uh, we've been using this for a long time. And Susan and I have seen this evolve from the early days of, you know, biting a plate to keep your head still and half an hour to calibrate to now these small devices that are really quite uh, easy to use. And now eye tracking is telling us with millimeter accuracy your eye movements. Sometimes for certain projects, certain types of research, this is of critical importance and other times it's less important. So for example, for video content, you're taking in a lot of the information through auditory signals, through peripheral vision. And so your focal point as measured in eye tracking is not the most important thing. For other types of content, like static content, or if we're trying to understand the reactions of banner ads on the side of a website, suddenly eye tracking becomes critical to diagnosing and understanding the overall experience. So the eye tracking layers in and varies in its importance depending on the stimulus or the type of content we're presenting. And finally, and this is sort of the suite that we use today, and we can talk about the future, um, we're also looking at facial expression encoding. So you are uh, often making facial expressions that aren't necessarily big, overt facial expressions. They're called micro-expressions. And we use simply a webcam that sort of hooks into about 40-plus muscles on your face and watches for the little smirk, the little grimace, the furrow of the eyebrow, and then that adds another layer of data into the system. Now, what's interesting, and we can talk more about, is the value of facial expressions is often minimal because certain types of content, you don't make a ton of discernible facial expressions. 
other types of content you do. And so it layers into the algorithm. It gives us greater confidence in the emotion that we're seeing. And we have plenty of stories and exceptions and, and how we use it and how we don't. But to make a long story short, um, sometimes we'll see that EEG is showing, wow, they're feeling a, a positive emotion and it looks to be that it's fairly significant. And then GSR is telling us yes, and in fact, they're quite excited because their hands are sweating. And then eye tracking shows us, well, this is what they're responding to. This is where their attention is focused. And then you crack a smile and we say, aha, we have strong confidence that this is an experience of joy that we're feeling right now. So that's how these things layer together and how we can really interpret with quite a degree of accuracy the level of attentiveness and emotionality that you're experiencing. So can I give a, um, a an analogy perhaps that you can that, that that may make sense to our listeners? I can't wait tell to me if I'm right or wrong. Yeah, I can't wait so, to hear it. So um, so Let's you you out your day, and uh, in order to know exactly what you're doing, you would have to put like a camera on top of your head. Hmm. But we don't have the technology to see exactly we, to experience what uh, we are experiencing because we can't communicate in the brain directly in that way. Um, so what you guys are doing is uh, you you see you you can't. See exactly what's going on but you can see who you called you can see the Starbucks receipt you had and when at what time did you buy the coffee you can like see the bus ticket and so you have like all this ancillary kind of uh, evidence and like a detective you you put it all together to figure out what you did on a certain day yeah I think that's it's, it's a great analogy and it it applies both like across sensors, right? How do we, as detectives, look at the signal of each sensor and put it together to solve the riddle? But also even within a sensor. So within EEG, we might say, well, you know what? We're seeing that um, a certain frequency of electricity is very active in this region of the brain and also this region. And in fact, it's traveling back and forth between those areas. And at the same time, we're seeing some kind of asymmetry between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. And, and, and that's in a different frequency of electricity. And so as we look at these frequencies of electricity, locations in the brain, again, it's like being a detective and saying, well, when we see this combination of patterns, it means this. And we see that combination of patterns, it means that. And so exactly as you said, Guthrie, we're essentially investigating a series of uh, data points that then give us an accurate signal to say, here's the mystery solved. This is the human experience. Okay. So uh, question I have um, oh yeah, is that when you do this, do you find that people react similarly I mean, so if you're, if you're, let's say you have a video ad and you're testing, you know, 20 people, um, will they tend to, you know, people are individuals, right? And you can show something to one person and they think it's funny and another person doesn't. So in general, though, do, can, can you make decisions based on, you know, how all of, everyone reacted or is, the, or is there a lot of individual differences? The short answer is that there is a lot of individual difference. However, 
oftentimes surprising and perhaps not as much as you might expect. And it very much depends on the content. So, and this also goes into how do we do sample size selection and how do we recruit so that we're measuring the right people, the right audience. And in general, you know, if you're trying to appeal to a group of 18 to 24 year old millennial females, right, then they will respond very differently than a group of 45 to 54 year old males. And we see those differences um, in, in a very clear way. On the other hand, there is a lot about how your brain functions that is very similar. Um, and so oftentimes we start to see patterns that are even more common across people than you might expect. But again, it really depends on the content. And I have been surprised on numerous occasions where I might think something might be really common to all people and we see there's a massive difference that we didn't expect. Or vice versa, I might think that this is something that is meant to appeal to women and men are gonna hate it. And it turns out that regardless of what they say, their experience is not necessarily that. And for me, the most exciting project, the most exciting research we do is when I am surprised. In fact, I, I just love being proven wrong because it helps validate the, uh, the, the work that we're doing. So sometimes we'll measure something and I'll say, that makes no sense to me. And then I remind myself that that's what we're in it for. It doesn't have to make sense to me. Yeah, it if if, it may, if you knew screen. beforehand, why would you be doing all this? Why would we even do this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All I right. just tell you. So, then, at, yeah. so tell me about the, the, the fantasy future. So the, there, are, there are sort of two elements. One is enhancing algorithms, and the other is um, adding sensors. And so let's start with the adding sensors, because there are a few things out there that are, um, that, that are important and showing great promise, but also have certain weaknesses. And in order to describe this, we need to just briefly talk about this concept called temporal resolution. In other words, how fast does your body respond? And so for the sake of example, your brain is responding within milliseconds. I mean, from the time that uh, visual stimulus enters your eyes and then starts processing in your occipital lobe in the back of your brain, that's like 30 milliseconds. And it only is another you know, 100, 200 milliseconds before that's fully really recognized and processed. Now, let's take heart rate, for example. Heart rate is much more of a delayed reaction, and it's not consistently delayed. It depends on a lot of factors like blood pressure, et cetera, um, and a lot of individual difference. So heart rate does um, increase when you're more emotionally aroused, kind of like GSR, but it might be five seconds later and it might be 20 seconds later. And so this important understanding of temporal resolution or the, the speediness of this response is part of the whole mystery here. So fMRI, this is, this is famous. You go in an MRI machine, right, and you lay in this bed and it takes up the size of a large room and the device is four and a half million dollars. It gives us a lot of depth. It gives us a lot of spatial resolution or looking very specifically at different parts of the brain, but it's through blood flow essentially. And so it's a delayed reaction. And so we don't necessarily know that during this 30 second ad, these four seconds really got you. Now there are other types of technologies that provide a similar type of 
uh, measurement to fMRI, but are less cumbersome and to some and certainly less expensive. One that I'm really interested in is uh, FNIRS, F-N-I-R-S. And this is kind of like a focused MRI um, on the surface of your scalp where you're shining a light and watching how it reflects back. And that gives us an understanding of the blood flow in very specific regions. Now, the weakness is that it is a delayed reaction. The strength is we can peer very specifically into an area of the brain of interest. And so if we were to say layer that in with EEG and then sort of time sync where we know when the response is relevant, we can dig a lot deeper. And so it's kind of like a, a portable little mini fMRI type of uh, situation. Um, and there are other technologies like that that can be layered in. One of the other thing that, things that we're experimenting with is um, uh, similar in terms of the technology to EEG, except you put the electrodes on a few locations on the person's face, and that detects the electricity conducted through muscle movements, which is another way to look at facial expressions that adds another layer of detail. So for me, the things that will allow this to be more powerful in the future, like I said, are twofold. One, adding more technology, as Guthrie said, so that we can have more evidence in order to really build the understanding of what's being experienced. But even more important, refining and honing the algorithms. So we're collecting immense amounts of brain data every day. And the more we collect and the more that we process mm. that using computer learning and sort of artificial intelligence-like um, processes, the more we're able to make the algorithms interpret the data even more strongly. And that's really the path towards pushing this forward and continuing to push it forward. Okay, Guthrie, so, you have a question? I'll let you get in here before I take over again. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so now, so as we, as we get more and more into the weeds, the difference between fMRI and EEG, do you see, so, so right now, and, and stop me if I'm wrong, fMRI is, uh, ha, you, can, you can get, you can get uh, better, more accurate data from fMRI just because you're like standing still in one spot. Essentially. Well, well, it's it's better in one sense and worse in another. So okay. it's better in that um, you are you are seeing very specifically different regions of the brain um, as they are activating, and so the 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 difference is that while fMRI is is looking specifically at different regions of the brain and seeing sort of spatially what what's happening in one location versus another, EEG is not that deep. It's, it's electrical frequencies that are happening on the surface that are indicative of things that are happening on deeper layers. So I can't, with EEG, look at your amygdala, but I can see electrical frequencies that are present because of the communication between, say, your amygdala and your occipital lobe and your prefrontal cortex. And so it's the, the EEG is looking at the electrical frequencies on the surface. The fMRI is looking deeply, specifically in one area versus another. Now, again, the advantage of EEG is that it's responding within milliseconds. And so for a lot of the kind of research we're doing, seconds matter. 
And fMRI is much more of a delayed reaction. And so there are pros and cons to each. But as you said, Guthrie, I mean, one of the main things, because we would use fMRI every day if it were more versatile, right? I can't take it on the road with me. I can't just plop it on your head. It takes up a whole room. You can't move. It's totally not naturalistic. And it's and wildly they're not cheap. Yeah. Oh, I mean, if you want to rent an, an fMRI from a university, first of all, most people don't have the ability to do that. Second of all, even if you did, it would probably cost it's about $500 an hour. Now, you can imagine what that would do to your budget if you are having testing a large sample size for half an hour each. I, uh, if, if anyone out there has not see, there's, there's, uh, has not, doesn't understand what an fMRI does, it makes a whirring sound. Um, yeah. Go online and take a look. Find a video of an fMRI machine with the cover off. There is a, uh, there are magnets that are hunks of metal that must weigh two, two or three thousand pounds. I mean, it's like it's like a four foot by five foot by four foot hunk of metal, yeah. and it's spinning around your head at uh, at like the same. Think of like a washing machine on the super <laughs> high spin cycle. You know, it's it's go it's going like 200 miles an hour. This hunk of metal that weighs like 5,000 pounds. So that's why. That was the best that's, description that's I've ever heard. <laughs> without looking at a picture, uh, that's that's so that's so spot on, Guthrie. And and because it's also this giant magnet, essentially, you better not have any metal in your body, and you better not be wearing earrings because it will tear it right out. Right, right. Whereas whereas like an EEG, it's like a small little cap that you like clip into place. You know? Guthrie, yeah. you, you participated in a research study where they were measuring EEG, didn't you? I had a, I have a friend who works for a, uh, the, 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 uh, I think, I can't remember exactly what it is. Maybe, maybe it was Gallup, maybe someone else. So, so, something like that. And they do, uh, and, and they just started up a whole EEG lab. And so um, each, uh, the, the person I know uh, was kind of in it was in charge of the recruiting and uh, I was able to you know go in for a for you know a test study and so so yes I've, I've done the EEG and they hook you up and then you go and you watch the the coke ad and, and yeah. they press different buttons and so that was right. fun I, I really right. I really enjoyed it it really is uh, it really is a great tool um, partly because I mean we can take it it's portable we take it anywhere in the world the one that we use actually communicates with Bluetooth um, so there aren't even any wires. Um, it just, you know, you charge it up with the battery just like you charge your cell phone and kind of like your cell phone communicates with your Bluetooth speaker, this is communicating with the computer and giving us all this raw data. All right, next. <clears throat> next question I have is, I don't know, Spencer, if you know, if you're up on any of the um, research about um uh like stents that put um electronic devices into people's brains without surgery because you can do it through a stent or uh other methods where you would actually Im have inside someone's brain technology that could then send their brain signals out and I know that's not what you guys are doing because you're not doing anything that invasive. But uh, you know what? What about um, this idea of you know in the future, at least a significant portion of people will be walking around with things 
in their brain that then can be where they can have their brain recordings uh, picked up and recorded um, all the time or at any time. Yeah, there, there are really two sides to that. One is um, the extent to which they can have their their brains recorded um, via similar technology to EEG, except embedded um, all the time. And the other is the extent that we can use a slightly different technology, which is actually sending electrical signals into the brain, which can be, uh, has, a, has a possible promising future in things like mental health and dealing with depression and anxiety and bipolar. And, and there's, a, there's really a lot, a big future for how this technology and how this science will all be used. Now, in terms of um, having this embedded in people as they walk around and go about their daily lives, the question that we really need to ask ourselves is what's the application? Because, you know, what's that Spider-Man quote, with great power comes great responsibility? Well, this is really powerful stuff. I mean, the things that we're learning in the studies about how people respond to, say, a movie trailer are far more detailed than you would ever get if you asked them a question. And the, the, the slippery slope starts to come in, and we start to have to ask ourselves some ethical questions, because this is all with the aim at the moment of persuasion, right? Can we better optimize our messaging? And so like all advances in science and all advances in advertising, we need to be very conscious of how this will be used. Um, and this is a very important topic right now. I mean, a lot of people are starting to become more aware of the amount of data that Facebook or Google has about you. And hopefully they're providing enough benefit that it makes it worth your while. But there's a slippery slope there and it's something to be cautious of. So I think that when it comes to those futuristic questions, which are probably not as future as people think that they are, uh, we need to really make sure to also ask the ethical questions and think carefully about how are we using this and is it actually bettering society or are we really just uh, becoming cyborgs that can be controlled at every whimsy of the giant corporations that are out there. So, you know, I'm, I'm in favor of the advances, and I'm also in favor of having the important ethical debates. Yeah, we talk, uh, we, have, we have been talking uh, on our podcast episodes, and then also Guthrie and I just talk quite a bit about the uh, ethics of lots of the stuff that we do. Um, and I'm even glad, you know, it, it's, uh, for, for some work I was doing recently, I was, I was talking to some of these researchers that are doing the, the, you know, implantable or stent devices. And one of the things that I find interesting when you talk to at least some of the people that are creating these devices is they always say that, um, there, it's all going to be used for, you know, uh, medical and improving humankind. And, you know, it, there's no, <laughs> like they never, uh, uh, they, no one ever admits to the fact that this might be particularly useful for other reasons that are not medical or improving um, the world. And uh, it, you know, you know that they've got to be aware that there's a dark side, but they don't, you know, it's right. there's always a dark they're never body. creating it for the dark side, never. Um, so right. I, I, you know, it's kind of interesting with the work that you do, because when you were describing it initially, you said, you know, you do this for 
advertisers and marketers and and um you know it it was it's good to to just hear someone say oh yeah we're doing this because we're helping people devise ads that are more interesting or products that people want more um i'm glad you didn't say you were doing it because it was going to help people with something medical or mental health <laughs> because yeah i mean the, the fact of the matter is and i think this is this is something to be conscious of and aware of and to talk about openly i mean this is one of the things that makes the world go round and pushes innovation is profit incentive and as advances in technology keep moving um there you know that there's money to be made and the fact of the matter is that as uh, somebody who says, no, we're doing this only for the most um, pure of medical reasons, um, the technology will get employed in other ways. And we better be prepared as a society to have those ethical conversations and really understand what we're doing. Now, you, you, you kind of uh, snickered about it, but the truth is, I will say, Susan, that um, my big dream, like where this is headed, is it does have to do with neurodegenerative disorders and it does have to do with mental health. And there's, a, there's something important that's happening here. The same kinds of algorithms that we're using to detect emotion actually are not that different than the kinds of algorithms that you would use to detect something like Parkinson's or to better diagnose and understand something like depression. And so the fact is that right now it's easier for us to penetrate the world of advertising and entertainment, the movie business. Um, but uh, the things that we're doing today are directly applicable to solving neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, as well as looking more deeply into mental health. So, you know, I, I am ready to admit willingly that right now we're doing this for marketing purposes. And, uh, and I'm not bashful about that. I also am excited about the future because I think that is one of the, the best things that can be done with this technology. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I, I'm very interested in, in things that people can do to monitor their own you know, health and well-being. Um, I, I, it seems like we, and maybe, maybe we're already there, and I just don't know about it. But it seems like there would be. Uh, you know, you could. I know there are devices, for instance, um, that you can use to um, stimulate certain uh, parts of the brain to. Uh, uh, have call calm yourself down be less stressed uh that kind of thing it would be nice if there was a eventually you know a home version of eeg with algorithms that are easy to understand so that you could just monitor your own um how your own brain is doing especially as you get older right i mean to sometimes i think um when with this whole idea of aging it's hard for people to recognize when their own, uh, you know, cognitive abilities are declining, right. or their, you know, something might have happened, and they, slowly, yeah, or they don't realize that they had a, you know, mini stroke, or you know, and it'd be interesting if you could kind of do a di self diagnosis, you know, on your, yeah, put put on your little EEG head head cap, 
uh, once a week and and just take some measurements and see how you're doing. You know, like you you right. can you can take I mean, blood pressure at home. This is where it's right? all headed. I, I mean, I I absolutely agree. When you turn, if you're a woman and you turn 40, you go in for a mammogram. So even before we're starting to like self-monitor, right? And there is this whole movement of the quantified self, right? And we're yeah. tracking our heart rate and our steps. And now GSR is in the Microsoft band and so on and so forth. But in terms of these um, health diagnoses or tracking your brain health, well, um, even before we start monitoring ourselves, what if we applied the same principle where you turn 40 as a woman, you go in for a mammogram, it's just part of your regular checkup, and you do it every so often. Well, you should also be going in not just for a mammogram, but a cognogram or you know something very similar where you turn 40, you turn 50, and every few years you get something scanned. Um, in terms of the movement of the electrical frequencies in your brain. And when we start to detect that certain frequencies are slowing down in how they communicate from one region to another, we may see that there's early signs of Alzheimer's, which if at the moment there isn't a treatment for Alzheimer's. And so that would just be a scary thing to know. But as the medicine advances and as there is a treatment, well, nothing's better than early detection because you can actually really save yourself from a lot of uh, pain and heartache if you catch it early enough to solve it. And the same goes for the field of mental health. If someone goes into a psychiatrist today and the psychiatrist wants to diagnose whether or not they have depression or they already know that they do, but they are wanting to track its progress and see how it's going. Well, that is like everything else emotion, just like in advertising, a kind of a subjective thing. Right? The psychiatrist asks questions. You answer to the best of your ability. Um, it's not unbiased on either side of that coin. And we're supposed to make a diagnosis and understand your emotional state and how you process emotion. Well, what about the exact same things that we're doing to measure advertising? Those same things can be employed in order to really understand um, your brain health. And that can be used to solve the problems or catch them early enough that they can be solved. I, I like the co I I think he had a trademark, co cognogram. Cognogram, yeah. I like that. It's something I think about very regularly, and you know, having purpose in your work is important. And I love the work that I do. It is so fun. I mean, we get to go in and test like cool movie trailers, and it is it's a blast. But to have that shining light at the end where say where I say someday this is headed into the world of what we just coined as the cognogram um, you know that's also important and it uh, keeps me moving I remember I was listening to a podcast and um, oh I'm not gonna remember the researcher's name now I probably have to look this up and 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 uh, uh, get it out to people but there was this there were these researchers that were they had a little piece of software that they were using to analyze uh, writing and they could uh, like figure out, they could run it on your, um, uh, the idea that it was that it could analyze like, uh, you know, how many, how difficult was the writing passage based on the length of the word and that kind of thing. And right. in order to test this, the, the program, they just put, um, they were running like uh, uh, e-books through it, you know, 
just to <laughs> and they ran some Agatha Christie novels through and the the they were looking at the data and they realized that over time um she w- the author was uh the 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 words were changing and her she was using um simpler and simpler words over time and they realized at one point that they thought they were looking at um the progress of dementia and uh they they the 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 university professor talks about when they saw this they didn't know what to do like did did you know Agatha Christie and her family know that she was, you know, because they thought they saw that pattern. So they actually contacted the author and her family and uh, who were aware that, but they they used this interesting algorithm right. to find right. out they could actually pinpoint, you know, when the dementia had started because she's such a prolific writer, right? She writes so many books. Um, they right. could pinpoint in time when the dimension started based on her writing. So right. I, you know, I think there's um, a lot of cues, and that's not even you know the brain, but there's a lot of cues of of uh, of our mental health right. that we can probably right. uh, tap into. And I agree yeah, with a you. Lot there's a lot of other kind of data that we can use. Yeah. I mean, people say that about about Ag- Agatha Christie's writing. They also say people look and they watch old movies and TV shows of Michael J. Fox. And, uh, you know, I have a friend who's a neurologist. He's practicing medicine. And he uh, he always looks at the movies and he says, look, there was a slight tremor. Um, and perhaps it could be predicted by also video cameras uh, that are detecting subtle movements. There are folks that are trying to look at, well, what if we could take, um, you know, we all have these phones in our pockets and we're always swiping and and typing and doing all kinds of different hand movements with these phones and if we could detect over time changes in those movements then that would be another possible indicator so there's just a host of data to tap into that uh, can be used for these various reasons pretty it's pretty crazy it's hey, pretty I crazy got- stuff I got one more question, and then we should probably get you out of here. And you'll have to you'll have to come back, and we'll we'll do we'll do a bunch more. Um, what is the rate? Uh, so you have you have these algorithms, right? And your algorithms are getting better over time. What's the rate of change? Just for example, Google, right? They use a lot of uh, AI to do their speech recognition. A lot of algorithms to do that. And since 2012, um, their error rate has fallen 30% from about 8% error rate to a little over 6%. So that's what, that's in, in, in uh, four, four years, three, four years, um, it's, it gets better about 30%. How much, how fast is, uh, are the algorithms uh, getting better? That's a great question, Guthrie, and I don't have an exact number answer, but I can tell that's you, fine. like kind of anecdotally, that what we're experiencing is, first we had to hit a critical point. And about three years ago, we we were not we were developing these algorithms for a very long time and didn't even talk publicly about it because we just wanted to like tuck ourselves in a scientific hole and get it right first. And you know, we spent years and then we hit a critical point where we said, Oh my goodness, it's really accurate. 
And we did a number of different uh, tests and validation studies to demonstrate that. And that was a really exciting moment. And that's when we started talking publicly about it and then really doing all of this interesting work. And since then, in the last couple of years, it really has advanced tremendously. Um, so, I, you know, there's kind of two answers to the question. On the one hand, it is absolutely advancing tremendously. And uh, every year, in fact, geez, every week we're making improvements that are really neat and allow us to understand things like how does humor work? How does fear work? And it's not like you expect. There's all these surprises in the data. But also there was a critical moment after a number of years of investment in these algorithms where suddenly we, we just it just started to make a lot of sense. And so it's both. It's number one, you just have to get to this point where you, you almost just like crack the nut open. And then it's a matter of making some incremental improvements as time goes by. Now you alluded to the idea of computer learning or artificial intelligence. And this is something that has been going on in the neuroscience world for a long time. Um, in fMRI research, they call it multivoxel pattern analysis, which is a fancy way of saying the computer finds patterns and then with those patterns allows us to make better algorithms or better comp uh, computations. Voxels. It's yeah, exactly. flops. <laughs> so, so these are the kinds of methods that we're using. And the, because we're using all of this AI, I don't like to call it AI exactly, but it's sort of AI-like. It's allowing a computer to detect signals and then um, understand those signals and allow that to inform the algorithm. That's what's making this suddenly go even faster. And it's allowing us to not just refine the algorithms we have, but create new algorithms. So for example, we have an algorithm that is essentially akin to lie detection, except the normal polygraph um, does, is not actually very accurate. It's slightly more accurate than flipping a coin. And it really relies a lot on the skill of the person doing the questioning as well as the fear of the person uh, being questioned that they actually think that it's detecting their lies more accurately than it is, which almost discourages them to lie or makes them too nervous to do so. So, um, you know, we have been developing various different algorithms for various different purposes, including, for example, the ability to do more enhanced, uh, essentially, lie detection. So there's a, there's a lot more progress to be made. All right, we are definitely going to have to have you back on for another episode. Sorry, Spencer, you just uh, you just well, I'm, I would committed love to yourself. Back. We we did kind of like all the basics of how does this work, and I think one thing that would be very fun to talk about is well, what are the applications? What are the studies? What have we learned? What has surprised us? And I think that'll be a fun time. All right. See, he's already got the lead for the next one. All right, that works for me. We will schedule another one with you. Um, uh, before we finish, I guess we should ask yes. if people... Yes, yeah, Spencer, what do you want to plug? Yeah, what do you want to plug and how can people get hold of you? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I don't have anything specific to plug. Um, you know, the company is Spark Neuro. Um, we are uh, analyzing emotion and attention levels in response to various different stimuli with a focus on advertising and entertainment. Um, I would say just pass this around, have your friends listen to it, get in touch with me for questions, and anyone can reach me um, at spencer at sparkneuro.com, or just go visit sparkneuro.com and see more of what we're doing. All right, sounds good. Guthrie, 
You gonna take us out? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I think that was a pretty good summary. <laughs> All right. If you got any questions in particular, you can email uh, me at info at the team um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to plug. We just uh, we just uh, rolled out our new version, Rev3, of our user testing uh, online course. So if you've already purchased it, um, the automatic update will come in. Otherwise, go check that out. Uh, Another, I just like to thank everyone so much, uh, Spencer. You've been you've been amazing. Yeah, thanks, and, Spencer. Uh, thanks. Spencer. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I hope everyone else has a great week. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, just thank you guys for having me on and for having a great conversation. It's uh, it's really always a pleasure to have a blast from the past and and <laughs> kind of like a little family reunion here. There you go. All right. All right. Bye. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye all.